Hey everyone, it's your host of See Jurassic Right, Stephen Ray Morris here, just dropping in to say, I hope you've been enjoying all the new episodes in 2023 and 2024 so far. There are new interviews with filmmakers, musicians, scientists, the screenwriter of Land Before Time, audio essays about the rich history of the Jurassic Park and Jurassic World franchise, and all the news about the upcoming animated show Jurassic World Chaos Theory and the as-of-yet untitled Jurassic World sequel coming next summer. I really need your help supporting the show right now, and you can do that by leaving a tip and or giving a monthly follow on Patreon, patreon.com slash There are $1 and $5 tiers, but more is coming. Sharing the show, giving five-star reviews in Apple Podcasts, and liking and commenting on social, at Stephen Ray Morris on Instagram and Twitter, goes a long way to help boosting the show's visibility again online in this new era. I'm an independent podcaster and your support is so important and means the world to me in keeping this podcast running. Link to the Patreon is in the show notes. Hold on to your butts. Thank you. And now on to the show. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There's a very exact memory that I have from environmental camp as a kid in New Hampshire where I remember being with a group of kids who you'd go to school with and then they'd send you to environmental camp for a week, which was just kind of exploring the woods and doing propelling and stuff like that. And this was kind of even before the common nature of the Walkman. For all the kids who are listening, a Walkman was a cassette of a portable cassette player, which became the Discman, which became the iPod, which now is just your phone. Um, it was before that, kind of. And I remember I didn't have one, and I was walking through the woods, and I remember coming to the edge of a massive rock face and just looking out at this beautiful New Hampshire view and in my head and I remember the feeling as if the song was playing it wasn't 
But in my head was the... And I just remember feeling so triumphant. Welcome back to See Jurassic Right, a podcast about Jurassic Park and you. I'm your host, Stephen Ray Morris. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the music of Jurassic Park. Don't send me for copyright infringement. I'm just so tireless. Yes, it's the themes of John Williams in the original that really tug at those heartstrings and make us feel like we're in the presence of walking miracles. Performer Chris Bermonte. As recalled in the intro, a moment from childhood that feels ripped straight from my brain, only swap out New Hampshire for Southern California. The imagination, backed by a proper soundtrack, can take you anywhere. But we can't forget about Don Davis, and currently Michael Giacchino's contributions to Jurassic, creating scores to the sequels that reopen the wounds of nostalgia, taking us back not only 65 million years, but back to 1993 as well. John Williams, born February 8, 1932, is one of the most prolific composers, if not the most prolific, of the 20th and 21st century. Not only is he responsible for the iconic themes from many modern blockbusters like Jaws, Star Wars, Harry Potter, and of course Jurassic Park, but he's also composed themes for the Olympics and is in second place for the most Oscar nominations ever with 51, and has taken home five of those. As of this recording, he is 86, still composing, and set to score the currently entitled Star Wars Episode 9 in 2019. Don Davis ain't no slouch either, composing the mind-bending score for the Matrix trilogy, and is currently orchestrating in the house of Pixar for Randy Newman with more franchise thirds like Toy Story 3 and Cars 3. Michael Giacchino, known colloquially around town as the new John Williams, is now handling the reins of the franchise when he composed the score for Jurassic World in 2015 and is currently scoring the fifth film of the franchise, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, set for release June 22nd, 2018. He got a start scoring for J.J. Abrams on shows like Alias and Lost and would go on to score many Pixar classics like The Incredibles and Up, for which he won an Academy Award. Fun fact, some of the earliest scoring gigs included the Lost World Jurassic Park game for PlayStation and Warpath Jurassic Park, a PlayStation-era Mortal Kombat-esque game featuring dinosaurs from the franchise. He's been in the Jurassic fam for over two decades, and we didn't even know it. Honestly, who better to talk about the music of Jurassic Park than with my co-host of another podcast I do. Uh, no, no, not the cat one. Uh, Popular Music, the podcast co-host. Yes, it's Annalise Nelson, a.k.a. Anabot, dear friend and current roommate. Every week, she breaks down the music theory behind pop hits from the likes of Britney Spears, Beyonce, Carly Rae Jepsen, and more. But as a talented musician and songwriter in her own right, she's had a long history with not only music and film, but where those places intertwine in magical ways. 
Oh man, I was trying to think about this the other day. I think that I I was a little bit older just because I was a very sensitive child. <laughs> like I couldn't even get through the Lion King without crying over Mufasa's death. Like I had to be dragged out of the movie theater because I was crying too loud. So, and that came out in 94. So I don't think my parents would have let me touch Jurassic Park until I was at least, I think I must have been, I think I was around 12 the first time I saw it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I was a little bit older. This was like <laughs> 2000, around the year 2000 was probably around the time I saw Jurassic Park. Was it like a family or like a sleepover or like? Kind yeah, of I think, I think it was a sleepover. That's cool. Yeah. So, but were you still scared or were you like, nah, I got this? No, at that point, I think I was, I was fascinated. You know, I, I, I had already started kind of making mini movies with my camcorder that I got for Christmas. And so I think that I was more interested in like how things were made. So I was, I liked watching it for the spectacle. Like I, at that point I could, you know, I mean, it was of course still like a little, a little scary. So, you, so you weren't really like a dinosaur's kid then? I wasn't. Well, okay. Let's back up a little bit. I was, but it was completely separate from Jurassic Park. Oh, okay. I think other kids were because of Jurassic Park, and maybe I, as a result, became into paleontology because my friends were into Jurassic Park. But I mean, we had in um, like in second or third grade, my my buddies and I like had this like fake paleontology club where we would go out into this like one courtyard area and we would pretend to dig up bones and we'd pretend like the rocks were like were fossils and mm-hmm. we would talk about what fossils we were finding and oh yeah i love that yeah what um because you're a musician mm-hmm. so what made you interested in well what made you interested in pursuing music but also because you also love film scores mm-hmm. so like what i guess is that in your brain is that two different things or is that just still part of all of loving music or if, like what made you interested uh, in film music specifically? Well, I think they're two. They all they actually kind of occupy two different places. Um, you know, I grew up listening to rock music. My family, I mean, it was all around me, like music from the '60s, '70s, '80s. Um, and my dad is, as you know, a musician, and uh, so I remember writing a song like with him while he was writing a song. So, so becoming a songwriter felt very tied to that, and felt like it was a tie to not like a legacy thing, but it's like, oh, this is a thing that everyone and not everyone in my family does, but there, there is obviously like a a, a strong affinity for this. Um, film music felt very much like my thing because for a while, and I don't know if you know this, I actually didn't think I was going to be a musician. Like my focus was film. So I was making like little movies and writing movies when I was like 10 and 11. Like I wrote a screenplay when I was 12 called Cindy and it was like a modern day Cinderella story that I wanted to have Mandy Moore be in and like, <laughs> yeah. yes. And I was going to play her, like her fairy godmother. But, um, in any case, like I was into making movies. So, um, the, f- the, the score side of thing, I think the score, sorry, the score side of things felt very organic to my love of film and it really started when I got into the show Alias, actually, because I had never heard... I'd always loved scores by John Williams, you know, classic Hollywood scores, um, um, Bernard Herrmann, and, um, you know, there were, there's, a, there's a lot of things that I just grew up loving, but I think Alias's score was the first time 
that I heard a composer blend really strong orchestral themes and principles like in the language of 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 someone like um you know John Williams and like modern dance music and electronic <laughs> music and um you know like me- mixing like a bond film with like Lola Run and that to me and blending anything in art is always what draws me to making art. It's not just like, how can I perfect this one thing? It's how can we mix a bunch of things to make a new thing? And so, yeah, it was Michael Giacchino's work on Alias that really piqued my interest. Oh, wow. That's so cool. I didn't yeah. know that. But she's not alone. Also jumping into the feeding, feeling frenzy, our DreamWorks producer, he worked on the Minions movie. And film score aficionado Robert Taylor, along with my really good buddy Dax Schaefer, who's a talented illustrator and musician. Plus, later in the show, you'll hear a very touching voicemail from Jurassic Park podcast contributor Tom Fishenden, aka Tom Jurassic. Have I ever told you my Jurassic Park origin story? No, no, please do. Okay. Um, so my Jurassic Park origin story is the movie came out, I w- came out, I was super excited to see it. And if you remember the news, the local news was saying, don't take your children to see Jurassic really? Park. It is too violent. Wow. Like, all, if you look at Siskel and Ebert's original review, they were saying, oh, it looks great. You believe that there's dinosaurs. Don't take your kids to see it. It's too violent. And so I begged my mom, and I begged my mom, and she finally relented, and we went to go see it. Probably it had been in release three or four, to- three or four weeks. And I went into the theater, I think the theater was empty or it was close to being empty. It was like 2 p.m. on a Tuesday. (laughs) We went in, we sat down, and I was utterly fucking terrified. And it got to the point where when the velociraptors came into the kitchen, I physically, and I'm not exaggerating, I got under my seat. I was so terrified. And I looked up at my mom, and my mother is a, a delightful woman, and she was a very good mother in most respects. But I looked up at my mom, and I said... Mom, they're not going to kill the kids, are they? And she denies this to this day, but she shrugged and went, eh, like that. And (laughs) you don't want to hear that as a child. um, Oh, my God. A nine-year-old child who just can't take it anymore. (laughs) And so I stayed under the chair for almost the rest of the movie, and I finally got out from under the chair and then the velociraptors cornered them right before the t-rex started to go and i was at the point of almost shitting myself at that point as a child i will never forget when they're surrounded by the two raptors and the raptors are literally about to jump onto laura dern and she's trying to protect the kid i i can't i can't i just can't (laughs) and my mom of course again just refuses to admit it but it is it is ingrained in my brain in ways Anyway, that's my yeah, yeah. Park origin story. What made you interested in film scores? Oh, I went to film school at the American Film Institute Conservatory, and then the more movies I watched, especially foreign films, the more I realized that the scores were having such a gigantic impact on them. And I, like most of America, I think, had only been exposed to the holy four of James Horner... John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith, and Hans Zimmer at that point. And I realized that there's so much more out there that you need to discover, embrace, stuff like that. And so I just sort of voraciously over the past couple of years 
have been learning and going on my own little odysseys, trying to find out so much about film scoring. And then even John Williams, for example, there's so many lesser known works that he has done in the 1960s, 1970s, stuff like that. And just discovering them, embracing them and seeing sort of how he has, uh, how he has matured over the course of his career. So I got to take a sip of water for that. Um, <laughs> I, I was trying to think about this recently, and I'm pretty certain that I saw it in theaters when I was a kid, because uh, my mom, my mom would take me to the movies more so than my dad would. Um, I there are very few films that I can think specifically of going to a theater with my dad to see. Like I could probably count them on two hands because he just doesn't go to movie theaters that often. But um, my mom used to take me to movies all the time. And sometimes I feel like she would take me to films that weren't appropriate for my age at the time that were like a little beyond my maturity. Um, But one of them was definitely Jurassic Park. Because I remember that was one of the earliest films that terrified me as a kid. I think, yeah, it wasn't till later that I kind of looked back at it as as more of, as less of a horror film, because I think I felt like it was a full-on horror movie when I first saw it, but then later when I looked back at it kind of as a, as a later teen and an early adult, it, it struck me more just how much of a good film it was, and uh, to be honest, you are a big reason yeah. why I looked back at that movie. No, I'm serious because well, I well we saw we saw the 20th anniversary together. We did the 3D release. Yeah, the 3D IMAX release. I was going to bring up. I'm actually wearing right now the um, oh the bracelet the slap bracelet. Oh wait, maybe this was for World. No, that was the slap bracelet you're currently wearing is from the Jurassic World thing that we attended together, which we'll That's talk about right. later. But I knew it was from either. The, it was from one of the two yeah. <laughs> instances. But um, I just I just host these like swanky Jurassic parties, you know, in L.A. where it's like, oh, have you been invited to Stephen Ray Morris's Jurassic party? Like he has them once a month and they're themed around it. That you're would the, be fun. Themed you're like the great Gatsby, but with with dinosaurs, but a dinosaur. the great Hammond. I, I don't mean to like I, I know I've already said that this about Jurassic Park, but as far as making music. This is also something you had a part in oh. because I wasn't as big into trying it back in college. And I remember you had done what, 20 albums well, over the course well, of, of being at Santa Barbara? Just uh, me being so modest. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, but you had done a ton of music on your own. And I remember that being really interesting to me because. I always had this perspective of like, you can't just make music. That's what yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what professional people do. Yeah. Um, but you always had this attitude of like, I want to do this, so I'm going to do it. I enjoy doing this, and nobody can stop me. No one can stop. But that was an infectious thing, and I do think that that was probably a component um, post college for me trying to figure out how to play music and and learn more about songwriting and. Uh, so yeah, like I, you had a you had a, a oh, big well, influence. Thank you. This is, on very that. <laughs> this is very sweet of you to say. And you also were an enabler because you produced the first album I tried to put together. So.
Now, the four of us are going to be doing a close read on one track each from the four films currently in the Jurassic Park franchise and discuss not only how we were moved, but why. There were tears involved. In addition, this was an exciting opportunity to explore the music of the films in ways I've always wanted. Not only do Annalise Stax and yours truly cover the themes we are set to explore, but also musician Stephanie Franciotti, aka Sleep Infinity Over, she gives her dreamy digital touch to the iconic Jurassic Park themes. She made an album released in 2011 titled Forever that is an unforgettable blend of glitchy shoegaze, ambient noise, and electropop. I'm so honored to share her interpretation here. So with that, let's begin. What is it doing to me? What is it doing to I me, Annalise? I didn't expect to cry. Um, Why is it working so well? <laughs> I, I mean, why, you know, why does why does a Frank Sinatra song work so well? You yeah. know what I mean? I think we're trying to put a finger on something that, I mean, I could talk to you about music theory and I could say, oh, well, you know, you have chromatic emotion is very intimate. Nah, nah. Repetition is intimate because you're repeating something again and again and you're hearing it differently every time because the chords are changing underneath. But... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What is What makes a song good? What makes yeah. a piece good? What makes a score good? That's something we can't quantify. We just yeah. can't. It's magic. Yeah. You know, and it doesn't matter how many fucking music theory class or classes I've taken. <laughs> There's just that little bit of composition that's going to be just the ineffable. It's going to live there. Yeah. And and I think that's what this score has. But I think what works is it's because it's not about and I will always keep coming back to this. It's not about these, you know, creatures being scary. It's about them being wild and majestic and beautiful. And that's what that theme is. It, I mean, it almost plays like a, a theme for royalty. Yeah. <laughs> like, think about it. If you, listen we, to that and imagine, like, like Queen, like a like Queen Elizabeth the first walking out, it would fit, right? Yeah. It, it it would it wouldn't feel out of place at all. Yeah. Because it's about looking at something and wanting to to revere it, to respect it, to honor it, and I think that's why, for us, we get choked up because it's like learning about something and i think especially dinosaurs it's like the first time you're told this amazing grand thing was real even if we didn't see it now we knew it was real at one time and there's so many like kind sweet lies that our parents tell us <laughs> about things that exist that don't which are great but we always end up finding out that they're not real dinosaurs are the one thing that seem like they could never possibly be real that they are magic but they're real but they're real and they're magic yeah. and i think that's why that theme is so it's like because it came at a time that time in our lives where it's that's why nostalgia hits you so hard i think if we had heard this when we were in our 30s i mean we'd probably be like oh that's a really nice score yeah but it's like not only are we hearing this beautiful piece of music but we're seeing these majestic creatures that were like i mean it's a movie but like but they were real yeah and what if, oh, what if they could be real again? Yeah. You know, what yeah. would that world look like? Yeah. So it's that, all about possibility. And I think that's why that theme makes us get choked up. Yeah. So That's really cool. Yeah. I know. I remember reading John Williams saying that it was like, he wanted almost it to be like a ballet or something, yes. which I feel like really ties into this aspect of royalty and the, you know, queen of the dinosaurs, uh, which now I'm just imagining in my head that the the main T-Rex in Jurassic yes. Park, Rexy or Roberta, as she's known as in the original storyboards, uh, that she could be played by Kate Blanchett. Like Kate Blanchett would mocap her now, you know, yes. in Fallen Kingdom. Yes. Um, Cause it's that same kind of like majesty or whatever, you know? So, and it's funny though, because it is like the thing, like we obviously do a, a podcast together, popular music, the podcug mm -hmm. plug within a plug, a plug within a plug, exception. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's that thing of like, even when I wanted to do this episode, like, obviously, I wanted to do it with you from day one. But um, but it was like, how do you talk about this? And it's like, yeah, trying to find that space between like how it works. But then maybe it's like that extra that X factor is sort of like your memory is where that is. That's mm -hmm. what that layer like is the part that determines how everything else works on you. And it also portrays a grandeur for these amazing beasts that also has a respect for it that i think mm. most fantasy scores overlook they have the fantastical elements but they don't have that respect that huh. williams would put in like 
an Olympic theme or in Obama's inauguration, for oh, example. And I know that that's a weird leap to put, but he approaches the concept of prehistoric beasts, these majestic creatures, with that same sort of reverence, which is why I think this cue in particular is so resonant for so many people. Yeah, yeah it's it's amazing. And the entire score is like that. There might only be probably... The score is, what, 56 minutes or so? Um, the, uh, the album, I mean. Mm. But on that album, there's probably less than three minutes of film score that aren't either developing themes, paying off themes, or just being a grand statement of the themes. And that's another reason why I think it so resonates with you. You have an emotional connection with the entire film because you have been exposed to all of those themes so much so over the course of the movie. Every moment has a theme. (laughs) And, you know, he did something similar in the Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone score, but most of the other subsequent composers, including, including himself in Chamber of Secrets and Prisoner of Azkaban, just sort of scuttled all of the themes that he created in the first movie. Um, beyond the Hedwig theme and a couple other friendship themes. Um, whereas here, every theme is special. It's just funny sitting here and like actually just sitting here and listening to it. I love sitting and it's not a thing that everyone does, but I do like sitting with other people and just silently listening to music. I mean, I think you and I do it a lot. So I, yeah, I feel like this was the perfect, another reason why I was, it's fun to have you as a guest because I feel like this is an activity that we actually do a lot on our own, not even just for a podcast. Yeah. I used to go over to your place all the time and we were just play songs that we liked back and forth for fun just to like as musical inspiration it's 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 like perfectly constructed for its purpose and it's very much like it's almost like they need to sell you on the idea of like that these creatures are good and beautiful Mm. because it's not that hard to make them scary oh that yeah that's a really good point because (laughs) if you didn't have the music they would just be scary in in some ways or you wouldn't be empathetic to them but yeah, every time it it kind of brings it, it. It's so interesting that the music is played that way to make you to make you feel compassion for these these creatures that uh, could turn on you at any moment and and end you. <laughs> Maybe uh, you even have more compassion because of the Jurassic Park theme. <laughs> I think so, and yeah. that's that's kind of the back and forth and the weird tug and pull of this idea, and it's sort of the. You know, it's Jurassic Park is the ultimate film about curiosity killed the cat. It yeah. really is. No, it, I mean, you're 100% right. <laughs> it's like, no, you are correct. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you we, are correct. We were so curious as to what would happen in this story. And guess what happened? <laughs> we were so curious whether or not we could. We didn't stop to think, think if we, we should. should. Mm. There we go. There it is. Um, but yeah, that was the. I just I I really love that 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 John Williams score is is the subjective human perspective of wonderment, and the lack of it is the terrifying reality of of how nature how cruel nature can actually be. Now I'm just hearing Werner Herzog in my head. The truth of the matter is that dinosaurs were never meant to coexist. With the human species, once reintroduced into the same ecosystem, a terrifying menagerie 
of reality being manipulated in an act of playing God <laughs> will result in the perversion of human accomplishments and its own demise at the hands of nature. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. <laughs> You're supposed to con- come down here and defend me against these characters, and the only one on my side is the blood-sucking lawyer. Thank you. <laughs> that was beautiful. I lo- do you want to do you want to jump to Lost World? Oh man! All right, let's jump into the Lost let's World. Do theme. it. You know, something has survived and it's the lost world. It's sight beads, you know, named after Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's like, you know, journey to the center of the earth. Well, he didn't write journey to the center of the earth, but, uh, you know, the, this idea that the sequel, it's a new Island, these dinosaurs live in nature. And it's just like, like John Williams is like, all right, welcome to the jungle, baby. Well, yeah. And I think that like certain things obviously are different. There's right off the bat, you get that this is more, this is less about the science and more about the adventure. And, you know, it almost feels like very closely tied to the Indiana, like there's something Indiana Jones about it. Yeah. You know, it, it feels more roguish and maybe that has something to do with the fact that the focus is more on Ian Malcolm. But like, yeah, you're right. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. But like even everything, like the beat it's in the key of it's in the, the it's in, it's in the time signature of six, fours, so like one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two. It's like, it feels kind of disjointed a little bit. Um, there's a lot more per- percussion. That snare comes in. It's like, that's like the marching four. that once again, sense of adventure, the tablas come in. So that's a sense of, I mean, it's very, you know, I hate saying this, but it's like, it's usually used in music when you want to say you're in a, in a, in a land that's kind of unfamiliar when you're using instruments from other parts of the world. It's like, okay, we're somewhere that feels unfamiliar. Um, and then, um, and then you have um, just even like the 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 scale itself feels a little bit more like Middle Eastern. It's like kind of in a minor key. There are more strings, but the strings are used in a more menacing way, but not in a not in a scary way. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like we talk about this all the time, and when we talk about our on our podcast, like there's like a difference between like scary and like menacing. Yeah. And this feels more like menacing, but like exciting. Yeah. So yeah. No. Yeah. And it's yeah, it's that thing of like. For me, the lost world, there is, it's like 
it's more it's like they know they're getting into an adventure this time yes there's a sense that like we are going into danger whereas before like i love that you put it that way with the science because it's like in jurassic park they're there to observe and to appreciate and to wonder and then shit hits the fan exactly this time they're like we're going into the shit yeah we're yeah exactly (laughs) and so yeah it's just so interesting that john williams really chose to not use most of the original music from Jurassic Park. Like he obviously finds ways to tie it back later in the film, like, but most of it isn't really used again until the end of the movie, Yeah, yeah. which I just think is such a, again, in this, in the era that we are in a franchises and tying things together, it's like back then nostalgia wasn't the same as it is now. Oh no. And yeah, I just find it so fascinating that he was like, like that was one thing we're going to, do something else like which i feel like makes lost world very unique in that way and then once you get like a a, an image of 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 the old park on a mural then it's like it can the original theme can kind of come back in but this just feels such like such a different animal (gasps) the scales he's using aren't entirely in minor or major like they use there, there you hear major jumps like like a like a major third for example is like na na, but a minor third is na na. He uses both of those things in there, so it's like, should I feel good about this? Should I feel bad about this? And that's in any element of adventure. It's like there's excitement, but there's also some worry, you know, <laughs> yeah, like the yeah. major and then some minor. We are full on King Kong in Ooh. this one. This is no this this was the thing that I really started noticing and as you said annie mentioned this in one of your earlier episodes in the lost world episode but jurassic world because lost world oops (laughs) dang it i knew i was gonna do that um (laughs) naming conventions that make sense um not here not Not here franchise (laughs) but uh in the first jurassic park they are pretty there's obvious in like influence from king kong just in the idea that it's on an island and you have these monstrous creatures and blah 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 blah. and even in malcolm says it at one point he says what do they have king kong in there he directly references it yeah but weirdly this uh lost world is the one that really goes that got away i don't know (laughs) (laughs) lost lost world is the one that goes full-on king kong and um that's not just in its narrative being, you know, peop- we're going to this island, we're going to take one of these back, uh, and we're going to, you know, it's going to wreak havoc on on mainland USA. Uh, <laughs> instead of New York City, it's San Diego. Uh, that's interesting that instead of instead of the East Coast, it's, it's the West Coast that gets it. But in premise, that's all kind of the same setup. So... Uh, the thing that I felt when I was when I was going over this one was that it really kind of struck me as though John Williams was doing a much more connected homage with Max Steiner's work oh. from the original King Kong. There's because there's elements in it that feel similar, and specifically when it gets into the kind of tribal sound of, yeah. of this one, because it's and I I have some I have a theory about this one a. Um, chaos theory yeah uh no which is nobody told john williams 
that he couldn't go insane yeah. on the metering for this because, and actually, I, I wonder if you can sit over here because I'd like to show you. Oh, I, yeah, I yeah. printed out the sheet music. Oh, I'm going to take a picture of this and put it, put it up for people to... Uh, which, because I was listening to it trying to go, what is going on in this theme? And I just want you to see the way that the, the time signatures... Now, if you don't know anything about time signatures, say 4-4 four, four is common time which yes. is you have four beats per measure and they're all quarter notes. So uh, this one starts out in 3-8 for one measure, shifts to 3-4 for one measure, and then shifts back to 3-8, the 3-4, and it does this a couple times. So the the result is that you get this one two three one two one two one two. One, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two. You get this kind of, it's not its not a typical sort of rhythm that you would feel in most songs, right? So it already kind of sets you off with this feeling of unease. When I think about the Lost World theme music, you know, that we just listened to, when I think about the Lost World theme music and I think about the themes of the movie, I think, and that moment is used kind of when everyone arrives to the island and stuff like that, and it's this very there's kind of like a rousing adventure feel, but something's wrong. Yes. And that's what I wanted to bring up because the, 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 the cool thing about all this is that yes, there are all these weird time signature shifts, but the main one throughout most of it is three, four and three, four is, is waltz is a type of dance. And the way I started thinking about it is that, uh, like, Dax has various post-it notes. I have various post-it notes of notes because my thoughts are a crazy mayhem. But uh, what I started thinking was that this whole piece is kind of like a a fucked up waltz. It's sort of this strange dance between the humans and the dinosaurs on the island. Oh, I love that. Because it's, it's kind of like there's this back and forth of 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 dealing with their presence and and furthermore how this plays into it is the main character of lost world is ian malcolm who is a chaotician and he believes in all of this stuff so it's almost like his presence as the main character calls for there being chaos calls for there being an unpredictable nature to it so you have this kind this this sort of three four melody that that is always being kind of shifted a little bit yeah. and you never get to be fully comfortable with it. So it's almost like John Williams approached this in a much more artistic way where, whereas the first theme is very, whoa, dinosaurs. This one's kind of like, yeah, dinosaurs, but look out. Yeah. yeah. Dinosaurs. Be careful. <laughs> like yeah, yeah. It sort of is, it has that kind of, um, that that cynical edge to it yeah. of, of you have to always watch your back when you're in nature. I think this is a fascinating score. Um, I don't like parts of it. Like I actively really dislike certain parts of it, but it's very interesting in context of where his career was at this time. He oddly enough had not scored an action film or an adventure film since Jurassic Park. He had only done smaller movies like Nixon, uh, Rosewood, Sabrina, Sleepers, stuff like that. 
So everyone was like super excited. What's Williams going to do with it? It was his most recognized theme since, of course, you know, uh, the Star Wars trilogy and uh, you could count Schindler's List, of course. But yeah, yeah. It's just all straightforward action, action, action all the yeah. time. They, the the uh, themes are an island and the characters are on an island. It's true. And I also think, and this is a wonderful transition into the third one, is there more you want to say about Yeah, that? yeah, yeah. Okay, so, and I think it's very interesting that Don Davis doesn't really reuse the Lost World themes, despite the fact, the Lost World theme, despite the fact that Jurassic Park 3 takes place on the Lost World island. Yeah, He brings back the themes from the first movie. Yeah. I think it's very telling <laughs> that, you know, Lost World is kind of lost in the mix now. Yeah. Um, did you like that pun? It was the worst. Sorry. No, it was the best. I think you win the pun award. I was trying to go with the island thing, and that was a little redundant. Let's discuss the problem, child. Um, the <laughs> oh, <I> g- <laughs> <No>. <laughs> everyone needs to re-listen to the Jurassic Park three episode. S.C. <laughs> Sandu and Brittany Mason they shared a lot of merits for they Jurassic did. Park three, and I think that's one of my favorite episodes on this podcast. Honestly, I will say there is more to love than I remembered about JP three when I when I looked at it again. There, there was some cool stuff in there. The thing that stands out to me is kind of the last third of this piece. Yeah. Where it breaks out of its shell. And even then, it almost feels like a kind of faux version of the first theme song. Like they're trying to like, that's almost like they're trying to redo the John Williams score in some way for this movie, which is weird because the John Williams score is also that theme is also present at times in the in the film so it feels like it's there's this butting of heads between old and new don davis got the missive this moment is not going over well no one gives a shit about the family so you need to sell this and that's when he does his job that's why he's like okay i need to make this as over the top and melodic and beautiful as possible because we have to give some emotion to the scene that otherwise would have no emotion so that's why i think the moment goes over the top got it i don't think that anyone aside from why can i not remember the name of the guy who came in for the last minute rewrites uh john august yeah i don't think anyone except for him knew that they were making a comedy i think that they were just in general just pushing forward and the the train is going yes let's figure out what's supposed to be happening meanwhile in the background everyone's just having uh john august is just having some fun as he's like (laughs) yeah well i mean and that's to that to that point it's like this moment is then immediately undercut by this deep 
I irony with the cell phone ringing and kind of mm-hmm. kind of parodying this very genuine moment. And so maybe that's where I'm like blending the two where it's like the intention here is is genuine. But then because this is such a patchwork quilt of a movie, yep. that moment is immediately undercut even in the score by the, by the ringtone being this dominant. Oh, that fucking ringtone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, again, it's that, you know, when looking at this movie, it's like, but it's kind of the most memorable musical thing about this movie. It's true. And you bring up another good point. I think that's why Don Davis so much embraced the first movie. He knew we all loved the score from the first movie and he knew what was on screen sucked. And so <laughs> He was mm-hmm. like, I have to go compl- as overboard as possible in order to make this work and make it seem like you're watching a fun adventure picture and not, you know, Velociraptors talking. Yeah. Um, so that's why I think he just brings back all of the melodies that you love from the first one. And like I said, he does do interesting things with those melodies. He creates one into a sort of militaristic beat later in the film um, he has one where it sort of warps apart as the pterodon is coming down. So he does interesting things, but he just keeps bringing everything back. He's like, no, no, no. Remember, you love this. You love this eight years ago. Love it again, please. For the love of God, I need to earn my paycheck. <laughs> I mean, but isn't that what Jurassic Park 3 is all about? Alan Grant has to learn to love dinosaurs again. We have to. <laughs> <laughs> but you need to be a glue. You just need to be a technical musical glue to the rest of this film because we can't get John Williams. Well, that's how I kind and, of feel. And, and that's in a way kind of why, to me, this bit, this reun- this reunited theme, again, this Homeward Bound theme that I'm sort of describing. It does feel like Homeward Bound. Ba- Who composed the Homeward Bound movies? That's I a want. good question. It's not Don <laughs> Davis, though. Otherwise, that would actually be hilarious. Um, Watch just James Horner. Uh, <laughs> I'm actually going to look up this Homeward Bound thing really quick. Because if it is <laughs> Hold Don for Davis, Homeward I will Bound. freak the fuck out. Is uh, it Alan Silvestri? Bruce Bruce Broughton. Is he, he's the composer? Yeah, so not. He did like Lost in Space and The Rescuers and stuff like that. So The film. movie? The Disney movie? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Bruce Wait, ba- the, the first one or the second one? Uh, Probably the second. The Rescuers Down Under. Yeah. yeah. I love the music in the first one. And the second one is fine. It it but it's a very different flavor and it's like meant to feel Australian and yeah. Australian. Australian. Um, um let's see. Which <laughs> ties into the Australian character of Jap- Jurassic Park one. No. Um All right, Homeward Bound Two Lost in Translation. Yeah. <laughs> uh Bruce Bound did it. Okay. Yeah. Um So he stuck around. Yeah, he's he, like, I'm I'm on this homeward bound train, uh, this homeward bound journey. <laughs> How did I screw that up? I mean, homeward bound is basically Jurassic Park. If you think yeah. about it. Jurassic Park. Oh, no. no, now we're now we're <laughs> this should just become about Futurama now. A, a good trick, too, is like I heard a lot of the whole tone scale, which is like, you know, I won't go into the nitty gritty of it, but it's like a scale in music where the distance is equal. Like usually scales are like a mixture of half tones and whole tones. And the whole whole tone scale is just whole tones. Oh. And so it, it, it's used a lot in like Star Wars. It's like if you're out in space, like basically it came from uh, it, there was a lot of use of it. in. Um, oh, my gosh, I'm totally spacing. Uh. No, 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 
Gustav Holst. Gustav Holst's uh, suite, the plan- orchestral suite, The Planets, um, which is a big inspiration for John Williams' score in Star Wars. Um, there's a lot of whole tone scale, and it feels like you're. It feels like space. It's like now what we t- we highly associate with outer space is a whole tone scale, but it can also be used for moments of uncertainty of like. I'm walking in here. What's going to be here? What am I going to find around the corner? <laughs> Who's hiding in the bushes? Like Rawr. that's that's the whole tone scale, but it's also used for like it's it's danger but wondrous dangerous. It's like it's like not just danger. It's like danger that you're like slightly curious about. So, I heard a lot of that in there too. And it's I, like I, mean, I feel like it's like another little shortcut. I mean, that's part of the theme of Jurassic Park 3 is that it's like you know, Alan Grant is like washed up and it's like, you got to learn to love dinosaurs again. So I feel like that's see? perfect. See, I didn't even see this movie. I haven't yeah, yeah. seen this movie, but it's actually good that I haven't seen it because I feel like trying to pick apart what's happening in the film without having seen it by just using the music. And that goes to show you that this is a good score because I'm getting that without having seen it. Yeah. And what I thought was interesting when I was reading Don Davis's thoughts, because again, I'm just imagining him all sweaty, like, oh, God, I got three weeks. Like he was he um, he turned the the Jurassic Park theme because the one returning character like Dr. Ellie Sattler shows up for a moment at the beginning, but um, in a moment at the end. But uh, Alan Grant is almost like the sort of main original character from Jurassic Park who's throughout the entire journey. So Don Davis was like, I will assign the Jurassic Park theme is now assigned to you for this film as yes. your theme. So, it, yeah, that almost makes sense where it's like, OK, well, now he's carrying the torch. So now you can't use it for totally. You have to almost like earn it back in a way or something. I don't know. Jurassic Park 3 is a hard movie to crack thematically as listeners of this podcast know, because just the script was thrown out six weeks before they started shooting but they had already um, started. Uh, they'd already started mapping sequences, so it's like they had sets and and things previsd. But then they like rewrote the script around it while they were shooting. Um, and I think that obviously reads from top to bottom, even with the music that I'm hearing it. Because the movie was so put together last minute, he also had to kind of like patchwork quilt this thing. And that sounds very it, that it just even the snippet that we listened to. It it sounds a little bit all over the place, not in a bad way. Yeah, not in a bad way, but it's like like you were even saying, like there's so many, there's so much happening at once in this this moment that it's like, all right, now we have to go from here. Now we have to go to this mood, and now we have to go to this mood, and they're all different. And um, and that's why you hear a lot of in in that just that little clip. A big trick of composers is you like hold on a note, right? So it's like you get to that high like string, like. And you, that, that may carry over from the previous mood and then you start building instruments underneath it. So then you have like, you know, the, uh, the, the horns come in with a little theme and there's like little, little moments of like, like half motifs there. Like I could kind of hear half of, d- of the, da, 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 but you never hear the, da, you just hear the, da, da, da. And then they build that, they they orchestrate it, like they they harmonize it within the 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 horns itself. So it's like a little tiny nod. It's like that's his way of being like, I'm gonna make this mine, I'm gonna chop off this note. But it's it's fascinating to hear that when you're just like you kn- knowing now, like, you know, the 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 production side of things, like uh, that's like a composer's nightmare, to be honest. <laughs> totally a nightmare. Yeah. Because you, you're already the comp- the music is the one of the last things to go up. Yeah. So you may be told like, all right, this is the, this is the timeline. 
you're going to have to have this. This is going to be your deadline. Like we'll have the film done here, but your deadline is in six weeks. But so you might have four weeks to have the music done. But then the film might not be done in time. And then you're told, but your deadline's the same. So like while the film's deadline in terms of it being done and going and po- like, in, like it's in terms of editing, like this may be done at this time, but we still need the music on the same deadline. So it's not like you're given any more time no, to yeah. finish. So that the release date isn't pushed back for you. No, no. I also wanted to play the stupid ringtone because it's also because yes. honestly, like talking about this episode with people, I was like, I don't know. The ringtone is kind of the most memorable thing from the movie, <laughs> like music wise. The way that it's described in the movie is that that ringtone is basically the theme song for their like crappy, uh, crappy pink tile <laughs> store in, you know, in the Midwest. Oh, man. I but, love it. But it sounds honestly, it very much just sounds like somebody took the Nokia ringtone and just like inverted it. It was like, how do we make something that's like, we don't have the rights, not 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 to diminish the, the, the importance of this piece of music, but it very much sounds like someone was like, well, we can't have the rights to the Nokia ringtone. So let's make one that sounds almost exactly the same, <laughs> which is a lot of there's a, that's also the less sexy part of composing is like what can we get away with doing? You know what I mean? Like what, what, what does the director want and what can we actually do? Okay. We can't get the Nokia ringtone. So I'm going to write something that sounds a lot like it. Yeah. You're like, you look through the credits and it's like ringtone composed by, you know, Getty images or, (laughs) you know, uh, 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 audio blocks or I don't know if audio blocks existed then, but the equivalent of, cause yeah, I've looked online to see who's composed it, but it's not, there's no credit to it. Hmm. So, huh. so and you can get it on iTunes. Uh, no, I just looked it up on YouTube. Well, how is that not your ringtone, Stephen? Uh, cause I don't want to be eaten by a spinosaurus. Um, but there are great YouTube. <laughs> Fair enough. What, what if it just, that's like, there? that's like um, a mating call or like, <laughs> Oh my God. Well, yeah, it's like, it's funny cause there's lots of YouTube videos on people recreating the ringtone using the composing tool on their Nokia phones. Oh, rad. Which I think is really... That's awesome. That, that's, Homegrown composing. Yeah, I thought that was very creative. Um, but yeah, so uh, that's my next mystery is to track down who did that theme hmm. song.
I'm just going to say it now because it's the one thing that I will aggressively fight anyone on. But I think that is not only one of the beauties, most, I mean, obviously the original Jurassic Park theme song goes first, then the island theme, the other big theme from Jurassic Park. But that hands down is the, like one of the most beautiful themes from the entire Jurassic Park franchise. It's like, to me, one of the most unique bits of score and it's the best moment in that movie. And it's also the most original moment in that movie. I think like, you know, when Claire and, 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 uh, Owen, you know, basically just are like, well, all these dinosaurs are dead. And this is like witnessing like the, the tragedy of like the monster they've created and like, and stuff. And what's interesting is he's using just from a musical standpoint. That's why I love him you can call back to things without directly calling back to them. So the original theme is da, da, da. His is, um, da, 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 da. And it's repeating something over and it's literally like do, re, mi over and over. And, but like having like the stately piano with all the reverb on it, just like chord. And then another chord, da, da, da. And that being your motif, less is more. When it comes to creating emotional moments in music, less is always more. You don't need, that's why themes aren't comprised of a billion notes. It's usually like two notes. I mean, Jaws is two notes that we remember. That's it. And I think that's what is so beautiful about it is it's, it's that's still that continuation of the majesty of the dinosaur. It's these strings just holding out and seeing, being in this moment and taking everything in. And I will also say to using, I think it's the trombone. So anybody listening, please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, rather than the French horn, I believe that he's giving that, that, the that moment where the, the horn comes in, I believe it is a, as a trombone, um, Giacchino uses that a lot in his scores. I first noticed it when he did it in Alias. And that's not, not a lot of people like to use the trombone <laughs> as like, it's not the sexiest of instruments. People will go for the French horn because it's quieter, it's warmer, but you can do a lot with the trombone. And I always love that he did that. And it, when that came in for a moment, I was like, that's my boy. There he is. <laughs> there he is. Well, again, it's that heraldry thing. Like if the Jurassic Park theme is the, is is the is the welcoming the the um the sort of fanfare this is the funeral march yes, you know yes and it's like it's such a beautiful moment in the movie and it's like i think that's to me is just what makes it so you know no matter what we think of the movie i think that is just the, the, that there like there's a soul right there in that moment, I think makes it worthwhile. Yeah. And the holding, when you hold the chords out for that long, you hold the notes out for that long, it forces the audience to sit in that emotion. There's such stillness in it. You can't escape. You can't escape that emotion. Uh, I wrote elegiac yes. and clarity. Uh, yes. Because like, this is the moment where, you know, our hero Claire is like, Clarity. Uh, oh my God. I didn't even. Ayo. Uh, You're welcome. All right. I'm going to like pull five bucks out. <laughs> um, but it's just that moment where it's the turning, it's the turning point for the character where she kind of realizes that like, I can't think of these creatures as, as um, you know, as assets anymore. No, like yeah. they are alive and it's kind of like, 
to me, it's the most electric moment in the movie. And Definitely. I feel like, yeah, you're right in that, like that space makes you uncomfortable. Cause you're just yeah. like, yeah, but you're, it's, you're waiting for something to happen. You're waiting for change. You're waiting for, for closure, which is one of my least favorite words in the, the English language closure. Cause I don't think it exists, but you're waiting for some sort of peace of mind to come and it's not coming in the moment. It's not coming in, in the music either. And they mirror each other in that way. In a, in a movie that to me feels like it kind of has its guard up a lot of the time. I feel mm-hmm. like that this moment in Jurassic world is the most kind of human vulnerable. Yeah. And human moment in the entire movie. I agree. It's the highlight of the score. That's not just regurgitating Williams themes musically. It's the highlight of the score and it's just beautiful. I mean, he uses all of Williams orchestrations. He uses Williams, uh, um, all of the instruments that Williams would have used, but it still feels like part of the tapestry Williams had created. You can see the maestro doing something like this, and that's why I sort of... It's just lovely. I love it. I'm really glad you picked this one, because this, to me, was my favorite scene in in all of Jurassic World. And uh, it kind of gave me a new angle to analyze why I liked this scene, and... Uh, part of it is obviously the fact that they used animatronic for this particular dinosaur dying. And you got a really real feeling interaction between humans and a physical prop. So that probably helped. But I really hadn't given the music enough of a of a careful ear to kind of dissect what it's doing. And yeah, I mean, it feels like Giacchino. How do you say his name? Giacchino? Michael Giacchino. Giacchino. Okay. I believe that he kind of is, he's been on his way to becoming the, the new John Williams, it feels like. like he, not, not to say they're the same, but in terms of the roles that they fulfill uh, in movies and scoring, it feels like uh, that's what he is. So, because, yeah, he's also taken over a Star Wars movie. But the title of this track uh, in the film is... Um, uh, Pavan or Pevan for the Apatosaurus. Um, and I just wanted to know what that meant. I was like, what does that word mean? Pevan for a dead Apatosaurus. Mm-hmm. Am I pronouncing it right? Pevan. Pavan. 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 Um, it says a stately dance in slow duple time. Yes. Duple time. Duple time. Duple time popular in the 16th and 17th centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I'm referring to a popular music episode. Oh, yeah. The 16th century. Yeah. Um, 16th and century. In the dancery. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the dancery. Uh, in the 16th and 17th centuries and performed in elaborate clothing. Mm-hmm. So I'm just, it's just very interesting that he chose that phrase for, uh, for uh, just for that. But once again, it, it ties back to the original score when you had used the words, um, oh, what we were talking about it being majestic or royal or, um, what was it that it, in terms of, oh, what was it? Uh, uh, um, not archaic. What's the word I'm looking for? Elegiac? No, the earlier, the like historic, but not, we talk about creatures that have been ancient. Ancient. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Something that's ancient using, you know, call back to a form of dance that has obviously not been in vogue for the past 500 years. So it's up to us to bring it back. Bring it with the pavan. Let's do it with the dinosaurs. Pavan, yeah. We'll wear masks. 
Oh, the dinosaur masks. Yeah, we'll do a pavan. We need to do a video of us just doing a pavan, dancing to a pavan with dinosaur masks. I love it. Um, make it happen. I'm going to make a crazy connection here, which is I mentioned that the Lost World theme is a waltz, is a chaotic waltz between the humans and the dinosaurs. This is a is also a type of dance piece in in just by the very name that Giacchino gave it and it's usually it in, in couple dances it it's i i read something quickly on on wikipedia that it's it's about that couple dances were kind of based on the advance of a man and then the 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 pushing back of a woman against that advance that was kind of one of the ideologies behind it and it's almost like you could read it as this sort of like humankind advancing against the dinosaurs and then the dinosaurs pushing back against oh. them. And, but it's also this, uh, in, in a different sense, you could look at it as maybe the uh, Indominus is pushing against all these other dinosaurs and they're, you know, in, they're trying to fight back, but they're all dying. So <laughs> that's a weird distant theory i was i was coming up with but i i do like the idea that in that scene it really is a moment between the humans and the the apatosaurus and it's rather than being a chaotic dance like it was in lost world it's now not not quite romantic but like something more based in that where it's a it's more of a a kind of understanding it's funny because the working title for Fallen Kingdom uh, was Ancient Futures. So, oh. yeah. And so Michael Giacchino is coming back to score that film. Yes. Which is exciting. Very exciting. Yeah. I mean, I guess do you have any, are you, because I mean, he's probably scoring it right now. Oh God, right now as we're sitting here. He's scoring it. Yeah. He, mm. My best guess is he has themes. He has the big stuff done. He won't start doing the nitty gritty stuff until the, he has a final cut of the film, probably, or at least a near final cut of the film, because then obviously, like, he'll finish that. And then if they need to tweak things, then they'll have his audio files and they can just, you know, because there, there are, there are, there's music for deleted scenes. And that's because, you know, it wasn't edited to the final cut of the film. But, um, yeah, I think he's probably working on on it right now. Whoa. I think that's a very, very good assessment. Whoa. Yeah. There are people who make soundtracks that when you hear them, you see the movie in your head. And that's what John Williams music feels like, is when I hear those theme songs, I'm seeing them. And I would say that about Star Wars, Indiana Jones, uh, and, and definitely Jurassic Park. Those theme songs, I mean, I even dare to say that the films that those are soundtracks for if they did not have that music, I think would lose probably like 40% of their lasting appeal. I think that's how important the scoring is in, in those movies. Like in as far as as far as having it last in your memory, it's 
that's why every show has a theme song. That's why everything has theme songs because music is this quick way to access your memory and your brain and you just kind of, you play a 30 second to a minute long theme song in front of something and it kind of quickly catches your brain up to like where that state of mind is. And John Williams is is one of those composers that can immediately put you in a very specific state of mind. I think like they are some of the greatest themes that have ever been done for movies. Hi Stephen, it's Tom here. I hope you're doing well, buddy. And hello to everyone listening in to see Jurassic Right. I hope that all of you listening into the episode today are doing well and you're enjoying it. So I wanted to leave a little message because we're talking about music today. And I think that for me, the synergy between music and certain scenes in the film is super important. And it is really kind of essential, I suppose, to creating really effective cinematography. So really the kind of films we look at would not be what they are without the kind of music they use. I think there's a couple of more recent examples I can touch on, and then I'd be interested to see if Stephen, if you have any older examples of music that you think kind of benefits certain sequences well, um, and things like that. So for me, I suppose, firstly, um, going along the Fallen Kingdom kind of track, I think the kind of foreboding piano style eerie-esque interpretation of the Jurassic Park theme that we've seen is really important in kind of setting a foreboding tone with that footage that we've seen I suppose so it is really important that the music there is used efficiently to kind of really create that feel and kind of work well with the footage on screen in a similar vein to that I think the way that the music is used in Jurassic World, when we get the sequence with uh, Grey opening the double doors and seeing all of the park unfold in front of him, is incredibly well done. That scene, although impressive, it wouldn't be nearly as emotive as it is for me personally, without the iconic score chiming in at just the right moment there. The way that entire sequence was composed to blend the two together was absolutely perfect and to this day it still gives me uh, chills, not chimes. Um, (laughs) And yeah, I kind of feel as though that kind of effect that just hearing that iconic music has really speaks volumes of the way music is used so well in these films. Um, Another example would be the Lost World sequence where you get a sense of pacing while the hunters are rounding up all the dinosaurs. The music used there has a really kind of pacey, almost fast-paced nature to it. And I really feel as though the music there is used well to complement the footage on screen. So I think that Giacchino, John Williams, everyone else who has been involved in creating music for the Jurassic films has really done an incredible job of creating music which complements what we see on screen and I think oftentimes when you go to the cinema you don't necessarily think of music it's just kind of there you're looking at what's on screen you're focused on what's on screen you think about the cinematography you think about the acting you kind of just take the music for granted you don't even realize it's there but actually the music is incredibly important in setting tone and 
I suppose adding a lot of flavour to what we see in these films. So I think we're really lucky to have some incredibly talented composers working on these different uh, films as we continue to get more in the franchise. And I think that we are incredibly lucky to have some music that we all love and some music which has become iconic and is almost standard for pop culture nowadays. So yeah, that's my little piece on music, I suppose. I hope that has made sense to you, and I am really excited to listen to this episode when it goes out. Have a good one, buddy. Bye. They do a lot of outdoor screenings of Jurassic Park. I feel like it's been ramping up recently. I feel like in the last couple of years, there's been a lot more. Mm-hmm. And it's almost... I it never, like It just doing this podcast it's like oh you should see the live here do this thing and i'm kind of like it's a little too much to experience in public a little bit almost mm-hmm. where it's like i'm at an outdoor screening we're all having a good time why is steven crying like you know it's like it's, but it's, it's true it's it's, it's yeah it and and i think this score to me is very emblematic of that where it's like every time you know the brachiosaurus reveal happens it's like Mm-hmm. It just super taps into something very primal, I guess, if we're mm-hmm. going with the theme, uh, you know. And so I don't know why, but it, it's this moment that kind of always for me, uh, obviously in the music is the thing that really owns that moment. And I feel like mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, I don't know if I want to. <laughs> we're all on. It's on a Saturday night in L.A. and it's summer and we're all having like wine and drinking. And oh, yeah, Steven's crying watching the <laughs> Jurassic Park movie. I think he's taking a little bit more seriously than everybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's going through something right now while we're just watching a movie. No, but I go I go through it in the same way you do. Can, the music's that cue in particular so perfectly captures the journey of discovery. Oh wow, I like that. Yeah, we talk. That's uh, why you cry, Steve. Yes, that's yeah. why I cry.
This has been episode 11 of See Jurassic Right. My guests on this week's episode and future episodes were Annalise Nelson. You can follow her on Twitter at La La Lonalise. Robert Taylor. You can follow him on Instagram at Bob Taylor Rocks. Dak Schaefer. You can follow him on Twitter at Dak Schaefer. Chris Bramante. You can follow him on Twitter at Amantioc. Tom Fishenden. You can follow him on Twitter at Tom underscore Jurassic. And you can follow Stephanie Franciotti, a.k.a. Sleep Infinity Over, on Twitter at Sleepover Forevs. While episode 12 drops one month from today, be on the lookout for a mini-suit dropping next Tuesday. I'll be playing voicemails and reading emails sent in from listeners like you. Also be on the lookout for future mini-sodes and special segments as well. And now you can support Sea Jurassic Right on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Right, and check out the Sea Jurassic Right Facebook group by searching Sea Jurassic Right Podcast on Facebook. Now, I have two questions for you. If you want to tweet at me, call in, or leave a voicemail before next month's show, these questions are... What did you think Jurassic World was going to be like before it came out? And how did you celebrate the resurrection of this franchise? 65 million years of waiting. Well, oh yeah. Well, all right. Well, oh yeah. Now you can also interact with me and the show by following me on Twitter at Stephen Ray Morris and following SJR Pod on Twitter, See Jurassic Ride on Instagram, See Jurassic Ride on Facebook, or you can send me an email at seejurassicride at gmail.com. Not only am I looking forward to talking to people about their Jurassic Park experiences and hearing yours, but I also am going to be sharing ephemera from my childhood and, oh God, I'm going to share the fan fiction uh, on there as well and pictures and toys and everything. It's going to be great. And I wanted to thank Caitlin Thompson and Tim Ruggery at ACAST, Molly McAleer, Heather Mason, Stephanie Cook, Sarah Iyer, and you. See Jurassic Right is an ACAST podcast. Check out the show on their mobile app. And thank you for listening. Until next time.
since I was a child I tried to be what I am not I lied and enjoyed it all my life I lied to my dear mother to my sisters and my brother now I'm lying to my children and my wife Big hat, no cattle Big head, no brain Big snake, no rattle I'll forever remain Big hat, no cattle And I knew it from the start Ballet, no heart. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.